This is the Wildflower Half Hour. This is a podcast all about wildflowers. Wildflower Hour takes place every Sunday between 8 and 9 p.m. on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We share pictures of the wildflowers that we found in bloom in Britain and Ireland during the past week using the hashtag wildflowerhour. It's the high point of the week on social media for many people and you don't need to know anything about wildflowers to join in. All you need to do is to look for some. If you find a plant you don't recognise, just post it using the hashtag wildflowerid and a friendly botanist will pop up to help you. Now in this latest episode we're finding out about an endangered plant, hearing more about your favourite wildflowers and following around Leif Bersweden as he goes out botanising. First up, the Species Recovery Trust is a fantastic charity working to save some of our most endangered wildflowers. Don Price runs the show there and is here now to share some of his escapades. Dom, dwarf milkwort is apparently so small that you're not likely to see it. So why are you bothering with it? Well, you know, the term small is beautiful obviously might apply in this case, but I think it's possibly one of our, the rarest plants in the UK, partly because of a, a bit of a taxonomic twist in the tail that um, there's a sort of wider genus of dwarf milkwort and that has a tiny cluster of sites in Kent and then a few more sites up in uh, North Yorkshire um, and the Dales. But the difference between the northern populations and the southern populations is so great that there is now pretty good agreement that the one down in Kent is actually going to be called Kentish milkwort. So it's a, it's a, whether it's a subspecies or it will eventually become a full species, that's still sort of being decided at the moment. But the one we're very much focusing down in Kent, so whether it's, you call it dwarf milkwort or Kentish milkwort, that is now down to just two sites, we think. Although because it's so small, uh, it could it. be, yeah. <laughs> it's like owning a so it's, uh, it looks like the other milkworts. So the milkworts are quite, um, they're quite quirky little flowers. Uh, they tend to have these sort of drooping, slightly dangly, almost sort of tentacles coming off the uh, lower petal. They remind me, I don't know if you're familiar with the Oud in Doctor Who, who, I don't know the Oud that well, but they had these like tentacles. They're one of the sort of classic Doctor Who Doctor Who prop aliens. But yeah, they have these funny little tentacles. And for some reason, milkwort always make me think of the Oud. You can you can Google the Oud and see what they look like. So yeah, these funny little tentacles. So dwarf milkwort, very much like the other milkworts, but just in miniature. And it is ridiculously small. So occasionally you get a sort of a giant plant maybe growing in the shade. And I suppose that could possibly reach a grand height of about sort of 10 centimetres on a very good day. Giant. Yeah, but most of them are somewhere around the two to three. So surveying for them, well, I mean, you're, it's not even hands and knees. You've got to get on your tummy and just wriggle and keep your eyes to the ground. And it's really hard. And some of these areas are quite, you know, it's quite big areas of chalk downland. So it's a real challenge. And I suppose the nice thing about it is there may be more of it than we've counted because it's so small. But we've had a real, you know, difficulty in the last couple of years We've only found it at one of the sites now. Um, so it's really, um, yeah, it's not in a good way. What's going wrong? Well, if you're that small, you don't really like being with other plants. You know, anything bigger than four centimetres tall is going to cause you a bit of bit of problems with overcrowding. So it really needs its own space. And I think probably 
it's happier being cattle grazed because cattle are quite good at pulling you know the way cattle graze is they tend to pull up vegetation and that creates this little these little bare areas but in that part of the world there's a lot more sheep grazing on the downs than cattle and the thing about i mean they're all right sheep they do keep stuff down but they tend to create because they they sort of prune the tops of plants off they tend to create quite a dense mat of vegetation and and that's a real struggle for it i think as well there's a whole thing in the southeast that there's a lot more nitrogen around than there used to be so whether that's in the air or coming in on you know people's dogs dog walking and runoff from agricultural land so i think a lot of vegetation is a lot denser than it used to be uh, and that was obviously you know a big goal of agriculture was to make the land more productive but the flip side of that is we've got all these nature reserves now which are a lot more productive than they should be so if you're something that's that small you're going to be in trouble and unfortunately being i think because it's only you know the kentish one is only in in kent and that's such a hot spot for this sort of pollution i think if we had more sites you know out in cornwall and devon and north wales and the lake district and places like that it would probably be doing rather better but it's it's not a great place to be if you don't like nutrient rich vegetation so what can you do you're going to construct teeny tiny eden projects over these plants to protect them well, we have thought of it. So there's one one site it's at, it's, we found it at, it's actually doing all right. And I think there's enough, it's on quite a steep slope and there's an, enough sort of, even though it's got sheep on, there's bits of erosion that they, they create as they, as they walk around on trackways. And actually we went there about four years ago with, with Mattox and we created a bit of bare ground. So that's doing all right. The other sites were really trying to get cattle grazing in, but it's, um it's a, it's a difficult part of the world because you've got these very small pockets of privately owned land. So it's quite hard. You can't, you know, you can say in theory, let's get cattle in. You then actually got to find cattle and drive them down the road and get them onto the field. And it, it, it's a difficult area to work in. So I think that's our main aim at the moment is, is to improve the management. And we've got, I mean, the, the Kent Wildlife Trust are very involved with this project and, and they're being fantastic with, with helping with that. Ultimately, though, it all it obviously depends on the landowner. And if they we had a situation last year where he just wasn't very happy. The problem with having cattle in the winter is you've got to be prepared to have your land trashed, which is what we want for the milkwork. We want mud and we want bare areas. But I think if you own the land, it's quite hard to look at that and think, oh, brilliant. There's, this is <laughs> brilliant. There's mud everywhere. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want to see when I look out of my garden is a load of muddy cattle. So I think that's been true. I think visually, I think people like sheep. There's something about sheep sort of merrily pacing away on a hillside that looks better than cattle kind of sliding down. So that's been tricky. We are with this one, we are actually looking at um, creating a new population. So it's sort of a reintroduction. It's a site called Queendown Warren where it used to grow, but we're actually going to introduce it off just off site because there's always a chance it might come back at the main site and it gets very confusing if you reintroduce species onto an old site where then sometimes it reappears and then you're thinking oh is that our plants or the original ones coming back um but there's a big chalk bank which the kent wildlife trust have created now ironically we started talking about this about four years ago and generally as a charity we're kind of quite renowned for being pretty quick on stuff because we don't we tend to sort of fund our own work through our training courses so we often don't need to wait for funding to come along 
this one has taken so long because it's virtually impossible to grow the plants ex situ. So we're working with Kew Gardens, but um, they are having a nightmare growing it. It's it's not. I mean, you you look at the seeds and you kind of think well, you're going to be on a steep curve here because they are they are so small. But yeah, it's not something you can just plant and, and, and grow on. It's it's very challenging. So even, you know, having come to the decision, the decision that we're going to make a new population, it's proving much harder to actually do in practice. And that can actually get quite expensive, can't it? I mean, the lady slipper orchid, for instance, I think costs Q about a million pounds just to work out how to germinate the seeds. So is that going to slow you down as well because you, you need the money? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we cure. We have a, a, a very good relationship with Q, and I mean, we do a lot of seed collecting for the Millennium Seed Bank. So we've had quite a nice sort of quid pro quo. We did. We were quite lucky to get some generous funding in the Kent area for Kent specific projects, which we've we've been able to put in this one. But um, I think it's not it's not as costly as the orchids because it's not it's not a sort of lab based thing. Because I think with the orchids there was that whole kind of thing about doing it vegetatively in these very complicated mycorrhizal thing i think with the thing with this one it's just the it's it's the time of having to do it year after year because some of the plants are not they're taking two years before they flower but it's not like somebody has to spend two years just doing that it's more you know you plant it and you check them but yeah it's a it's a bit of a nightmare because it's it's you know you make the decision think okay we're going to do this and you know we're, we're never we're never that happy to do the reintroductions. I think our approach is always about, you know, if we can do the management and, and you know, as I've said for other species, it's if, if nature can do it with the help from you, it's brilliant. And it feels as soon as you're planting stuff out, you've kind of lost a big part of the battle. But it's really calling having thought, OK, well, we accept we're going to do that. And then, yeah, to really struggle doing it. But we're, we're getting there. We did, we did actually you have enough plants last year and then lockdown put pay to it because we really couldn't sort of get into Kent at all to do it so fingers crossed this spring we can get out there and start it and then we've just got to hope but it feels having spent three years where I think we've only managed to grow about 15 plants it feels like an incredibly sort of it's almost like you're sort of children leaving home to just leave them out in the wild you almost when you've got that few plants you just want to keep them and stroke them each day and look lovingly at them. So it feels really tough to stick them out on this chalk bank where, you know, I don't know what they're going to think about being on a chalk bank. They've been in a lovely nursery for three years, being looked after by <laughs> by Kew Gardens. So I fear we've got a long journey with this plant. But, you know, we'll keep working on the other sites and you never know. You know, things may change that, you know, as we've said, climate change, a lot of these habitats are changing anyway. It may be something that, you know, if it, if it likes bare ground and it's very small it might do better in this sort of hotter weather we're getting at the moment so we'll keep our options open but yeah I fit of all the species we work on this is the one which tends to keep me awake at night because it's what I said I think it's down to one site and that's really really bad you, you never want to get that low with a species. Thanks so much Dom and we'll be hearing more from him about other threatened plants later in this series. Now let's hear from some of you about your favourite wildflowers. Hello, it's Alastair Stewart. I used to read the news on ITV. I love the fact that we live on a, a small farm with uh, with several horses and, and a couple of donkeys uh, and are therefore surrounded by uh, lots and lots of fields. Uh, and we're lucky enough, therefore, to have quite a few wildflowers uh, dotted about the place. 
I think my absolute favourite is the teasel. It's a beautiful small uh, flower with quite a pointed uh, sharp head, uh, blues and purples. Uh, it's not unlike the thistle, which is uh, another of my favourites, and perhaps the clue for that particular affection is in the full name, Alastair James Stewart. But they're lovely things. The other thing that they have in common is that colour, which attracts uh, pollinators, uh, not least beautiful butterflies, and we are littered with them in the spring and the summer, uh, as well as bees coming back, and uh, it's just lovely to stroll around and watch them. Another favourite is the cornflower, partly because our eldest son went to Winchester College and the cornflower is the symbol uh, of that great school, um, but we don't seem to be so lucky with them. But teasel and thistle are in great profusion, but if I had to choose just one, uh, it would be teasel. I, I think we'd love to go full high grove, as it were, and give over an entire area uh, to wildlife and wildflowers. But uh, alas, I don't think the horses and the donkeys would, would allow that. But we, we have a good showing. Uh, there's one little area of, uh, of one of the smaller paddocks that really does its own thing. Uh, and it is just such a joy of a morning to walk through that and see the flowers coming uh, out of head bud uh, into full uh, glory uh, and watch it change over the seasons. It, it really is just a joy. We don't pick any of them. We leave them there for the bees and the butterflies. Uh, and of course, I guess the horses occasionally uh, chomp on them, but, but not the thistles and not the teasel. Uh, so there's the upside to it. As Isabel has written so eloquently, it really does matter. It's about our well-being, and long may it endure. My name is Ian Haddingham, and my Twitter handle is at Geltex. I'm here to tell you about uh, a special orchid that grows pretty much just in Kent, although there is a small colony in Oxfordshire. This is the ox, the <coughs> monkey orchid, Orchis simia. There are two locations in Kent where it grows. One is a private fields near Faversham. Second one is a public reserve, an SSSI, uh, in the Elam Valley. It is the hunt for the monkey that really got me into orchids. Uh, I'd gone down to San Ho to look for the early spider orchid. I met another orchidist and he told me that you really should go and see the monkeys. And so I did. I had to wait two, two and a half months to, to see them, but it, uh, was worth it. First of all, you see a, a green rosette and a few weeks later, a central spike rises with the uh, budding interflorences on the top showing white. Unlike almost any other UK orchid, the monkey orchid opens from the top to the bottom. <clears throat> it is pink and white. Uh, the flowers are anthropomorphic, i.e. that they have a head, legs and arms and a little tail. Um, yeah, and in a good year, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of these little monkey orchids growing over a downland meadow that looks the same as any other. To have it on our doorstep it means, you know, we are so lucky. But also at the same site, there are many, many other species not just of orchids, but of other flowers, and it's uh, fabulous for butterflies too. Whatever time of the year you go to the reserve, there's always something interesting and new to see. And who doesn't love a good monkey orchid? Thank you.
I'm David Morris, ecologist and nature conservationist working for the RSPB. You can find me over on Twitter at JFDI Ecologist. My favourite wildflower is the purple saxifrage, Saxifraga oppositifolia. The stunning native wildflower is a small low-grain gem with straggly mats of dense little unstalked opposite leaves encrusted in lime deposits at their tips. It's one of the earliest of our mountain plants to flower, coming into bloom after the winter snows melt and can usually be seen flowering at its best in the last week of March and the first week of April. Its stalkless flowers often flower over its green sprawling growth with petals ranging from pale pink to purple and in a good year on some sites it can flower with such profusion that its tight leafy growth is entirely smothered below an outstanding cushion of purple flowers. Not only is it a beauty but it's a real hardcore plant. In the UK it's found growing on the base rich cliffs and stony screes at montane sites in Snowdonia, the Pennines, Lake District and the mountains of Scotland. But on a global scale, it has some incredible accolades. It grows across the mountains of Europe, Central Asia, North America and well into the Arctic Circle, so hardy that it can be found growing at the most northerly terrestrial plant community in the northern tip of Greenland. I've seen it flowering at nearly 4,000 metres in the Tian Shan in Kazakhstan, and it also holds the record for the highest altitude flowering plant in Europe at 4,500 metres in the Swiss Alps. I first encountered this plant on family walks in the Dales and I now make the annual pilgrimage to the nearby Pennygent in the Yorkshire Dales to see it flowering. Pennygent has to be one of the best sites in the UK to see this plant. It's my favourite wildflower both for its incredible flower power but the enchanting locations for which it grows. If you want to revel in its splendour I'd follow the words of the late Alfred Wainwright. April visitors will forever remember Pennygent as the mountain of the purple saxifrage for in April, this beautiful plant decorates the white limestone cliffs at the 1,900-foot contour with vivid splashes of colour, especially being rampant on the western cliffs. Thanks, everyone. Now, let's creep along behind Leif Bersweden as he goes wildflower hunting once again. Hello, everyone. This week, I'm wandering around the muddy paths of my local woodland. Whoa! <laughs> Nearly just fell over immediately after starting. <laughs> we are rapidly approaching late March and I'm hoping for some good early spring wildflowers today. I've already seen ground ivy for the first time this year uh, since I arrived at the wood and there are lesser celandines all over the place now. now. I'm walking down this wide muddy track there are lots of very large, gnarled oak trees all around me. They're covered in moss and lichen. The whole place just feels old, you know? The understory is largely hawthorn and coppice hazel. It's a sort of lovely patchwork of habitat and it looks perfect for spring wildflowers. It's so open and light. Now the woods are traditionally where the wildflowers begin their year because by mid-May the canopy will have closed over with fresh green leaves so the spring woodland wildflowers need to get up and flower before that happens and make the use of the light while it lasts. And all around me the woodland floor which only a week or so ago was completely brown is now sort of infused with green as little bluebell leaves poke their way up through the soil 
uh, there's the fresh growth of dogs mercury and lords and ladies the woodland sort of feels primed you know what i mean it feels like it's nearly finished all its preparations and it's just ready to erupt with green life all over um all over the place over the next month or so oh i'm so excited with everything we've had to deal with over the past year i think this is probably the most highly anticipated spring ever Ooh, just spotted some primroses among the hazel so i'm going to carefully climb through this thicket I'm sure you're all familiar with primroses already but they're these low growing plants with big tongue shaped leaves and the flowers have five pastel yellow petals each one with a little notch at the tip and a dab of sort of mustard yellow at the base <laughs> so beautiful the name primrose comes from the Latin primarosa, meaning the first rose. Uh, it's not a rose at all, but it's a nice reference to one of the first spring flowers to bloom. Now, primrose flowers come in two different forms, as you may well be aware, called pin and thrum flowers. And they differ in the position of the stigma, the female part of the flower, and the anthers, uh, which are the male parts covered in pollen. So if you imagine a primrose flower, or look one up if you don't know what it looks like, uh, it's got these five petals, and at the centre of those five petals there's a little hole, which is the top of the tube where the reproductive parts of the flower are, and crucially where the nectar is. Now in pin flowers, uh, the stigma is at the top of the tube, sticking out of the hole like a pin, and the anthers are out of sight, halfway down the tube, and in thrum, thrum flowers, it's the other way around. The anthers are at the top and the stigma is halfway down. And one primrose plant will either have all pin flowers or all thrum flowers. Now these different flower types were first described by Darwin, I think. And he did a series of experiments where he took pollen from one flower and placed it on the stigma of another flower. And he did this between pin to pin, thrum to thrum, pin to thrum, and thrum to pin. <laughs> uh, so all, he did all the different possible combinations. And he showed that the crosses between the different flower types were more fertile than those between the same flower type. So the idea is when an insect, uh, let's say a bumblebee, sticks its tongue into the tube of a thrum flower, where the anthers are at the top, the pollen sticks to the top of the tongue. Um, and as it visits different flowers on the same plant, because they're all the same type of flower, that pollen never comes into contact with the stigma, because it's always halfway down the tube. Uh, then the bumblebee buzzes off to a different primrose, and if that one has pin flowers, then the stigma will be at the top of the tube, so it will get pollinated. I hope that kind of makes sense. <laughs> The reason for this is to promote cross-pollination between different plants 
it makes sure the primrose doesn't pollinate itself basically which is generally considered less of a good thing this is really neat nature trick now the one I the ones I found there were all pins but I'm going to keep checking the primroses that I come across to see if I can find any thrums now as I walk I can hear I can hear all sorts of twittering going on in the trees there are blue tits great tits robins the birds are really getting busy <laughs> it's one of those really sort of sunny early spring days everything's just starting to think about getting green and there are these little streams running through the wood twisting between the trees and under fallen logs and in a few weeks they'll be lined with opposite leaved golden saxifrage which is a tiny golden green plant that loves those damp conditions like the mosses do in the ferns ah <laughs> i found some spurge laurel cool okay let's stop here and have a look at spurge laurel oh it's gonna get around this bush hang on <laughs> Okay, so spurge, oh wow, there's a wood anemone. <laughs> oh wow, hello. Oh, that's so exciting. It's my, it's my first wood anemone of the year. <laughs> it's on the podcast. How great is that? <laughs> yes. Oh, it's amazing. I've missed these so much. Okay, wood anemones first, and I'll come back to the spurge laurel in a sec. Wood anemones are one of these sort of spring poster flowers. Uh, they're members of the buttercup family, and they have these six white petals surrounding a sort of starburst of yellow stamens. Uh, the leaves are quite floppy, and they have these five lobes, so they kind of look like a hand, sort of. <laughs> I love the folk names for wood anemones, particularly windflower, which is just the most perfect name for it. If you've ever seen those big carpets of them moving in the breeze, you'll know exactly how it got that name. Um, wood anemones are ancient woodland indicators. So if you find them, it means the ground you're on hasn't been disturbed for a long time. Each patch you find is spreading via its roots uh, and they do it extremely slowly and there's some old research which suggests that um, they spread at such a slow rate that it takes them a hundred years to expand just two meters which is completely insane so if you find a large swathe of them then you know you're in a really really old place if you f if you do find them like this um, i really recommend just setting aside five or ten minutes um, and just sitting there or standing there uh, and just thinking about that for a bit because it's so special oh i can't believe i managed to get my first wood anemone on the podcast <laughs> that's so exciting okay so back to my original find which is just over here i'd almost made it <sighs> okay this spurge laurel over here 
Spurge Laurel is a small shrub, it sort of comes up to my knee, um, and it grows in woodland on calcareous soils and flowers at the end of winter. Uh, it has these green flowers, which in itself is pretty weird. It's fairly unusual to come across green flowers because the colour of the flowers is often used to differentiate them from the leaves and to attract insects. Uh, but these ones are pretty pale yellowy green. And they've got these long tubular bottoms and then four green petals and they form these clusters at the top of the plant. Now, I think they release like a really sweet uh, scent into the air which attracts early flying moths and bees. Um, so they've sort of invested more in the way they smell than in the way they look to attract their pollinators. Uh, spurge laurel is neither a spurge nor a laurel, confusingly. The leaves look a bit laurel-like and the green flowers are reminiscent of the wood spurge which will be in flower here in a few weeks time. But for some reason, whoever named this plant could, <laughs> couldn't come up with something more original. I feel like if I was naming a whole other organism, I'd put a bit more effort in. I don't know, it's kind of like, I don't know, naming a yellow hammer a canary dunnock <laughs> or something. <laughs> a canary dunnock. <laughs> and on that note, um, I, think, <laughs> I think I've run out of time. So enjoy your wildflower walks in the woods. Um, definitely get down to the woods at this time of year. There's so much which is about to happen. Uh, it's really cool just watching it all, all play out. Um, so enjoy watching the spring arrive and tag the wildflower account when uh, wildflower hour account when you post your finds. Uh, yeah, and have an excellent couple of weeks wildflower hunting, and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Leif. And that's very nearly, but not quite, the end of this episode. Don't forget to take part in the next Wildflower Hour every Sunday between 8 and 9pm on social media. And if you're getting really into wildflower hunting, do look out for our weekly challenges, which you can find on the official Wildflower Hour social media accounts. They'll encourage you to look for plants in places you might not have thought of. But for now, here's a final favourite flower from Nick Sendall, who likes his choice of plants so much that he wanted to sing about it. Thanks for listening. Yet you shine like ten brittle stems of fragile in my hands. Pure as white, you're the wedding cakes of springtime. Rabalera, Holostea, I call your name. Starflower, thunderflower, say to pick, you bring stormy weather. The pixie save you from the at night Snake needles mother shimbles to feed the bees and the underwings so adders meet and the maids of
When I first met you, you were dancing with the blue 